welcome again to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And today we're going to take some of those discussions further that we've been having about diagnosis and think a little bit about treatment. But Simon, before we go there, I'm delighted to say we've had some more correspondence. Please do keep your letters coming in. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Comments about what we've been talking about or life in general, really, what it's like to be an emergency physician. The letter I've got reads as such. Hang on a second. The, The handwriting's just a little bit spindly. Here we are. Uh, so it begins, Dear Dr. Cliffman, I was alarmed to hear that you felt 98% sensitivity was required in your department. After many years, I'm only 20% sensitive and entirely satisfied. Yours sincerely, Mrs. Trellis, North Wales. Thanks again, Mrs. Trellis. Lovely to hear from you. Um, please, as I say, keep those letters coming in. Simon, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, well, today we're going to take it on from where we were thinking about diagnostics in the previous uh, podcast and think about therapeutics. One of the things I think came out of the diagnostic podcast was that we like talking about natural frequencies. It's much easier for us to understand a test which works in 1 in 500 patients or 1 in 50, rather than talk about rather abstract terms such as sensitivity, specificity. So this time we're going to take that a little bit further and think about therapeutics. Can we use the same principles and can we use something called the number needed to treat as a way of really understanding uh, what we're talking about? So can I give you an example? Of course. Of course, okay. So I'm going to take an example. I'm going to do some trials on myocardial infarction patients. And it's a great trial. I'm going to do a new drug, and it's going to be really good. So give you some background data, and I want to see how you feel about this. So we've got our AMI patients, and after a month, about 10% of them have died, which is very sad. But I've got this new treatment. It's awesome. And it's going to improve the mortality by 50%. How good is that? That's amazing. So we're going to save 50% more lives. Well, do we? Run me through the numbers again. So we've got 10% who are dying. Yep. And we're going to improve that number by 50%. Yeah, it's 50% better. Okay, so uh, so do you mean that now only 5% of people are going to die? Well, it's it's difficult, isn't it? It's not a very clear thing to say. And it doesn't really particularly help when people come out with that kind of data, because what does 50% mean? Does it mean that you reduce it by 50%? Well, if there's only 10% for starters, that would end us up with a minus 40% mortality, which would be a bit bizarre. Or does it mean it halves it? But when people are talking about these things, they don't talk very clearly about it. So let's, let's just explore that. And there's some terms that we can think about. When we actually do the data in our particular trial, it's in a hypothetical trial, The mortality was 10% in our placebo arm, if you like. And in our therapeutic arm, it goes down to 5%. So that is a 50% relative risk reduction. So the risk, 10, 5, is about 50%. And that's usually what people are talking about. So that's pretty good, yeah? So that's a relative risk reduction of 50%. Yeah. Sounds pretty good. But it sounds awesome. But what's the real reduction? What's the actual reduction in mortality here? Like guess it's a 5% reduction in mortality. Absolutely. So it goes down from 10 to 5. But again, if you go into a, speak to a patient or speak to a colleague and say there's a 5% absolute risk reduction, does that really instantaneously tell you exactly what's going on? Well, 5% risk reduction it doesn't sound like much now. It doesn't sound like you're really improving me at all. No, and that's why drug reps and big pharma often use things like relative risk reduction because it overemphasizes or exaggerates the effect. So same data... You could express it as either 50% better or 5% better. Which one do you think the uh, marketing department's going to go for? Well, I'd very much like to be 50% better, please. Yes, so I'll give you that option. But it's the same thing. 
I don't think either of those are particularly helpful ways of describing the benefits of treatment. Because, I'll give you another example, okay? I'm going to take those AMI patients again. We'll take a different cohort. And in this group of patients, we're going to have a 20% mortality a month. And my new therapy is going to improve it by 10%. It's going to go from 20% to 10%. What's the relative risk reduction there? Well, using the theory we're just talking about, it's again a 50% reduction, isn't it? Absolutely the same. So your relative yeah. risk reduction, you could have a completely different um, therapy and benefit, but the RR, the relative risk reduction stays the same. So that can't be very helpful to us, can it? Well, it doesn't seem to describe it very well, really. It, it's not giving me a true picture of what's going on. No, and the absolute risk reduction would be... Well, 10% in that case. Yeah, so you've got... Uh, and what's going on here? We've got the same relative risk reduction, we've got different absolute risk reductions, and that's not helpful to us at all. So there's something that we can do differently. We can work out what's called the number needed to treat. And that's the difference, the absolute risk reduction, so either 10 minus 5 in this case, or 20 minus 10, and divide that into 100, and that will give you the number needed to treat. So for every X number of patients you treat, you get one benefit. So an absolute risk reduction of 5, 5 into 100 is? A 20. So for every 20 patients you treat, you get one benefit. In this case, one more survivor. But for our second trial, where we had a 10% absolute risk reduction, 10 into 100 is 10, that's a benefit for every 10 patients that you treat. So you can then clearly see, if you use something like natural uh, numbers needed to treat and natural frequency, that you can demonstrate very clearly that the second trial had twice the benefit than the first. So we've now got this idea that we can explain to patients about the chance of the treatment having a benefit for them. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always struck by this, that a number needed to treat of 10 is regarded as pretty good, isn't it? It's awesome. And actually that means that nine patients we treat see no benefit from the treatment at all. Is that right? It's a mixed bag, isn't it, when you look at any, the outcome of any trial. So for most trials, some people will benefit from treatment, some people will have no effect, and some people actually might do harm. But when you're looking at the overall figure, at the end of the month in this case, it's a, an amalgamation of all those potential outcomes. So from this point of view, some people may have actually been harmed by the therapy, so they'll still be in the mortality group. Some people have been received the benefits of the therapy. They'll also be in the saved group. So it's a mixed picture, but that's okay. I like nice, simple summaries at the end, which I can then use to communicate to myself and to patients. But a number needed to treat of 10 would be seen as a good thing. It's far more effective than many of the things that we do in practice. So I'll give you some examples. And there's a fantastic site, isn't there? The NNT.com, which anybody who's listening to this should really go and have a look at. And they've got loads of information on NNTs. But I'll give you some um, simple examples. What about tranexamic acid in uh, trauma? Do you know what the, the number needs to treat is for that? So I can't remember. Crash 2, all very good, all very positive. Yep. We're really pushing tranexamic acid. Might save lives. Not much harm. It, it must be quite high. We're pushing it really hard. Um, yeah, I think it was around about 50 um, I can't remember off the top of my head now, but it was around about that, that level. So for every 50 patients you treat, you gain one survivor. That's very effective. Um, it's a really, really good um, therapy. And that's similar, actually, to aspirin. In? In the treatment of uh, myocardial infarction. Okay. So, so also a great drug. And it, Do you think they're mainly regarded as great drugs because their, their harm is low? Do you think we have to start balancing up? Is there a way we can do a number needed to harm as well? Absolutely. And we saw that in the trials of 
starch solutions for sepsis in the last couple of years. You may have seen that on a lot of the foam sites. So things like the Perna trials, and they looked at numbers needed to harm. And we came out with figures in the sort of a region of about 10, 12, 14. So for every 10 to, to 16 patients that you saw who you treated with starch solutions, you're actually causing one additional death. So number needs to harm is the same, it's the same calculation, but just done in a different direction. So let me just, so we have a bit of revision of that. How do you do the calculation for number needed to harm? Number needed to harm is essentially you take the difference between the two values. Um, so in our case, in that, even in that trial before, we could say the number needed to treat with a therapy was one in, tw- was one in 20. But we could yes. reverse it and say the number to, to harm with placebo or the alternative medication is also 20. It's just which way you're looking at it. But the number needed to harm and the number needed to treat aren't always the same, are they? You have to look at the outcomes that you're getting from your trial. You can calculate a number needed to treat or a number needed to harm for any outcome in a trial. So you can look at the overall outcome, live, die. So mortality um, trials tend to work in that way. But you could also look in trials such as low molecular heparin for um, patients undergoing uh, lower limb immobilization. And you can look at the numbers needed to treat to prevent DVT. But you could also look at the numbers needed to harm for major GI hemorrhage. So yes, you can do that. But at the end of the day, I think it's always important that we have one final overall benefit or harm figure to work with. Because that's, that's what patients want to know. Do you not tell them both numbers? You don't tell them number needed to treat and number needed to harm? In some occasions, yeah. I mean, we used to do that a lot with thrombolysis, didn't we? we for stroke? Yeah, well, for, for we don't um, do that in our shop. But in the old days when we were doing thrombolysis for myocardial infarction, we would give them numbers needed to treat and the numbers needed to harm, yeah. I, I think, because I do, with no, I, when we had stroke thrombolysis, we do it in our, in our hospital. Uh, I have very little to do with it which I'm sort of thankful for, I think, because I think it's a very difficult thing to get informed consent about. But we use, they tend to quote the NINDS numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, in my head, the NINDS numbers, which I'm, I, I, I know there's discussion about how accurate they are and what that means, but a number needed to treat that NINDS went for was about one in eight. Something about right for you? And a number needed to harm was about one in 16. So for every eight patients you treated, one of them had an improved outcome. But for every 16 patients you treated, one of them had a harmful outcome. And usually this was something pretty bad, like intracerebral hemorrhage and death. Can I then say that for a group of 16 patients, two of them will have benefit and one of them will see harm and 13 will have no difference? If we take the statistical analysis. So if I have a patient in front of me, I can say... 16 patients present exactly like you, two of them might have an improved outcome, one of them is going to drive intracerebral hemorrhage, or am I taking the statistics too far? You look pained as I look at your face here. It depends what you're talking about, whether those are balanced um, calculations. Again, you can calculate a number needed to treat for any outcome, but for a trial of therapeutics, you should be looking for what's the number needed to treat or number needed to harm for their principal primary endpoint of the trial. So for something like stroke thrombolysis, I would be looking at mortality, all-cause mortality. I think that's to be a really good number needed to treat. And that encompasses both harm from therapy and harm from the trial and also the patients who have no benefit and no harm. It's a global assessment of the benefits of that trial against their primary endpoint. Those are the figures which I think are most powerful in clinical trials. 
And is that just described as the number needed to treat? So am I am I mixing apples and oranges there if I do number needed to treat, number needed to harm? You're just saying that you can calculate those figures for any of the potential endpoints in any trial. What I'm saying is you should look for and focus on the primary endpoints. Great. So we now have a way in which we can describe to patients the benefit of a certain treatment. Yeah, um, we can take it one step further as well, actually, because number needs to treat when you put them into uh, natural frequencies are quite useful because then you can talk about one in 100 people or one in 50 people. So you can talk about things like, you know, one person in your house, one person on your road, one person in your in your children's school, one person at Manchester United on a big day, one person at Wembley, one person who attended the World Cup in Brazil. You can use analogies which are very helpful to for understanding. And I think some of the numbers are actually quite surprising when you look at them. And the NNT.com is brilliant for that. Mm. But as you flick through the different things that and I trust the guys who run that website to have done that data absolutely perfectly they're really surprising that the number of interventions we do that actually have relatively little impact absolutely and that's not the way that clinicians either want to believe or want to practice if I say to them you know what's the number needed to treat for thrombolysis for instance in inferior myocardial infarction Many clinicians I speak to would say, well, if you don't have it, you're going to die. So they've got a feeling that the NNT is almost one. In reality, the number needed to treat for those patients is probably over 100. And that's a huge surprise for such a a radical um, therapy for patients, which has significant harms associated. And this then comes back to that idea we've been talking about previously of if you miss a diagnosis. Still, I don't like the word miss, but we're going to stick with it. So actually, sometimes you may not succeed in saying a patient's got a diagnosis and you then don't have the opportunity to give them the treatment but the actual truth is is that in a large number of those patients the treatment would have had no benefit anyway correct and then for some of those patients the the therapy may actually be harmful as you say so we can really start to think about what it is we do where we have an impact where these decisions really matter i sometimes see people rushing to give certain medicines clopidogrel in acute myocardial infarction is an example mm-hmm. and everything is being put on hold to grab the 600 of clopidogrel from the cupboard to get it in but yet the nnt for that is relatively high we're we're forcing ourselves we're stopping doing other things for interventions that don't actually make a huge difference in the majority of patients um, absolutely and that's a it's a good example because the drugs like that the nominees treat is often quite high but when you also associate it with a nominee to treat with the timeliness of the intervention. So clopidogrel, good idea, like it, we don't use it, but that, those, that class of drugs for um, patients with significant acute coronary syndromes is good. But does it need to be done now versus half an hour? And if I need half an hour to just make sure that it is the right drug for that patient, then that's a good thing to do. And I've had a number of uh, junior doctors come up to me with great anxiety to say that we need to give them the low molecular weight heparin now before they go for their chest x-ray or have a, another intervention and say well actually you know half an hour is probably not going to make a radical amount of difference if you want to do a diagnostic test to make sure that it's safe to give those drugs because with each of these things there will be a harm associated absolutely and we want to be as certain as we can we're doing the right thing for the right people but these are concepts which i find really hard to explain <laughs> When there's such a rush to do everything now, yesterday, before the patient's even got ill, we're supposed to be, you know, it, the rush to do things, we can, we have got time to stop and think. 
Uh, and we don't give ourselves that chance sometimes, I think, in this pressure to give them everything straight away. I would agree. And by pressurising ourselves and making decisions early without adequate levels of information, we potentially put our patients at risk. So let's just quickly revise because we've tackled some pretty complex, I think, statistical type analyses there, but put it into a, con um, into a clinical context. We've talked a bit about relative risk reduction, absolute risk reduction, how they're very different. They're the same. They're the same figure, but just expressed in a different way. So but relative risk reduction, absolute risk reduction and number needed to treat are exactly the same data, but just expressed in different ways. But NNT is the easy one to understand. Because other ones can either misrepresent or be harder to understand. So the relative risk can be an over-exaggeration of benefit. So we've got to be slightly mindful of that. Mm -hmm. The absolute risk reduction doesn't necessarily explain to patients in a way that's useful. But we can just flip that and turn it into the NNT, the number needed to treat. And that will help us explain the benefits. And I think signposting people at least three times in this podcast to the NNT.com is probably one of the most useful things we could do because the numbers are simply staggering mm -hmm. simon i'm really happy i think that's taken us through how to think about those things a anything else you want to add before the end another surprise question perhaps that you just like to spring on me oh i'm not really into surprise questions although there's, <laughs> there's one thing though oh go on uh, yeah so ian um one question for you um okay you read a lot of blogs don't you i try to keep up with them as best i can what do you reckon the number needed to educate is? That's the number needed to treat for education of blogs. How many blogs do you have to read before you make a change in your clinical practice? The NNE? The NNE. I think we've just opened a whole can of uh, research worms here. <laughs> uh, I, I think we could start thinking about this. The number of blogs you need to read to change one person's... The, so it's the number of blogs a person needs to read to change their practice. Yes. For you, what's your NNE? It's relatively high, I think. But I guess I'm quite selective about the blogs I read. So I, I find authors that I enjoy and I think know what they're talking about. And often they talk about things I don't know about. And that's why I deliberately choose them. So I'd hope it'd be relatively high. It's not going to be one, though. I definitely it's, I'm probably going to read at least 10 things before I pick up one thing. But that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile because I'll enjoy reading them and they'll keep me interested in, and enthused but it may not necessarily change what I do. Mm. How about you? I think, it's right. I think you're right, actually. I think that's a really interesting point about what it makes you think about. Because if I say that the number needs to educate, I reckon it's about 20, maybe 15. Okay. And the reason why I think it's so low for me is it's not necessarily what I do change in patient care, but I reckon for every 15th blog, I have a conversation with a colleague or a junior or uh, another specialty to start questioning what we do. So my educational intervention, I reckon, is probably somewhere around 15. For every 15 blogs, it drives me to do something else in the workplace to try and make the world a better place. And I guess that as people who write blog posts now and again, and for people listening, that's something we can think about how we do when we are writing something is how will this affect people? Will it make a difference? What, what's the purpose of why I'm writing it? And hopefully we can influence people with with good thoughts and make them enjoy their emergency medicine and be more effective as clinicians absolutely simon as ever thank you for the final question they're always enjoyable and always a surprise and we'll see everyone again on our next podcast we hope this has been useful please get in touch um, we do enjoy hearing from mrs trellis but hearing from you guys too would be fabulous and please guys take care does mrs trellis even know who works for us 
Uh, no, she seems to not. She seems to just wonder... Uh, she scatterguns who she writes to, I think, but it's still nice to hear from her. Oh, she's a lovely lady. Um, have fun, yes. everybody. Take care. Bye. Thank you.